All right, I will go ahead and get started as people are trickling in. Hopefully you grabbed your handouts. I should mention you're always free to take those home. So if you wanna take your handout home, you can. You can write on it, take notes on it, do whatever you would like. But we'll begin with a prayer. We'll read from Psalm 29, which is one of the greatest odes to the word of God in sacred scripture. So we'll begin in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over the mighty waters. The voice of the Lord is power. The voice of the Lord is splendor. The voice of the Lord cracks the cedars. The Lord splinters the cedars of Lebanon, makes Lebanon leap like a calf and Syrian like a young bull. The voice of the Lord strikes with, fear, with fiery flame. The voice of the Lord rocks the desert. The Lord rocks the desert of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord twists the oaks and strips the forest bare. All in his palace say glory. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So just to briefly recap, the first time I talked about architecture of the church building, and then last time we talked about the introductory rites, and today we will talk about the liturgy of the word. My hope is that I leave sufficient time for question and answers because I haven't been able to get to all the questions. And so I'll try and be a little bit shorter with my part and a little more time for question and answers. And you can ask questions from anything that I've covered so far. Because after today, we're kind of at a halfway point. So I'll cover the liturgy of the word today. And then next time, I'll cover the liturgy of the Eucharist. We'll go through the Eucharistic prayer, the preparation of the altar and all that. And then the communion rites. And then finally, the closing rites and some other ancillary things, which I think are important, I will mention. So after today, we're kind of at a nice halfway point. So with a substantial Q&A, you can sort of catch up with any questions you may have. So the liturgy of the word, that of course begins when we all sit down for the first time and our faithful reader comes forward and reads, and it continues then through the prayers of the faithful. That's all consider the liturgy of the word. So the key point of the liturgy of the word, don't overthink it as I would tell the school kids, is sacred scripture. And so we'll begin with this quote from Sacrosanctum Concilium, which is the Second Vatican Council's document on the liturgy. It says, the treasures of the Bible are to be opened up more lavishly so that richer fare may be provided for the faithful at the table of God's word. So they use some very figurative and poetic language, but it's very purposeful language. When they talk about the table of God's word, they talk about opening the scriptures, richer fare being provided. They're getting at this idea of twofold nourishment, which we have at mass. So I have this quote from Revelation when the evangelist, he takes the little scroll from the hand of the angel and he eats it. And he says, it was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And in many ways that is sacred scripture. It is both sweet and it is bitter. It is sweet when the word of God encourages us. It is sweet when the word of God lifts us up but it is bitter when it corrects us, when it points out to us the importance of eternal life, when it convicts us of our sin, then it is bitter. So in the mass, 
you see a twofold nourishment. First, we are nourished by God's word, sacred scripture. And this prepares us for the nourishment on the altar. So you receive the word of God through sacred scripture, and then you receive the word of God himself, our Lord Jesus Christ, through the Eucharist. So that's the twofold dynamic which the council is talking about. First, we'll be nourished with the word of God, and then we'll be nourished with God himself through sacred scripture. Twofold nourishment. So I just had some practical points there in letter B. There is a cycle of readings. The cycle of readings was redone after the Second Vatican Council in 1969. And so now we have year A, B, and C for Sundays. So we are in year A. And one year you read Matthew, one year you read Luke, and one year you read Mark. And John sort of gets scattered throughout Lent in the Easter season. So A, B, and C for Sundays. These Additional Sunday reading was added after 1961. So in the 62 Mass, the Latin Mass, there was only one reading. It was usually referred to as the instruction and then the gospel. There was a desire to make it through more of Scripture, for lack of a better term. And so they added a second reading. So on Sundays and solemnities, we have the first reading, usually from the Old Testament. Then, of course, we have the responsorial psalm. Then we have the second reading from the New Testament, usually the epistles or the Acts of the Apostle. And then we have the gospel. So that is sort of our Sunday cycle. For weekday masses, there is a two-year cycle, year one and year two, which we go through. There's also what is called the common for memorials and feasts of the saints. It's the common of pastors, the common of martyrs. When you celebrate a martyr, let's say you're celebrating Polycarp. I think he was a martyr. If not, I looked like a fool, but that's all right. Let's say he is. You, <laughs> it's always dangerous when you record talks. You never know. You're like, oh, man. Let's say he was, Polycarp. I think he was. You can choose a reading from the back of the lectionary, the book, and it's called the Commons. And they're themed for the sort of saint that they were. So you have the common of pastors. And you have readings which are about lead, leading your flock and being pastor. You have the common of martyrs, which are readings about martyrdom and whatnot, giving up your life for God. Those are in the back of the lectionary, and they're optional for certain feast days. My rule of thumb is I look at the proper gospel for the day. If I don't have anything and I have the option, then I'll go read from the common of um, martyrs or whatnot for the saint. You also occasionally have what are called proper readings. Certain saints and certain feast days have their own specific readings for that day. You see that with like the Annunciation, the Immaculate Conception, the big feast. I think Martha and Mary have their own proper gospel. And it's a specific reading for them for that day. If it's an optional memorial of a lesser saint and you're outside of the Lenten season, then you just have the option. You can do the reading for the day, going through the cycle, you can go to the commons. But occasionally, for certain major feasts, you have specific readings, they're called proper readings. Number four there, the thing to always pay attention to, and it's of vital importance when you preach a lot on the gospel like a priest or as a deacon after they get ordained, there's a concordance. The church always pairs, not always, but usually pairs the Old Testament reading and the gospel. They're going to have a common theme. So when you hear the Old Testament reading and you hear the gospel, you should be able to pick out a theme. And you see this a lot in Advent where they have an Old Testament reading, which is a prophecy, 
And then they have the gospel reading, which fulfills the prophecy. So there's a concordance, to use the word of St. Anthony, a joining between the Old Testament and the gospel. Number five, I mentioned this, readings can be chanted to add solemnity. We started doing this my last couple years in seminary for major feasts. The deacon would chant the gospel. I was told this year that the uh, readers will chant the first and the second reading on major feasts. It just adds solemnity. It's not the hardest thing to do, but it's not the easiest if you can't sing. So So that's sort of just general tidbits about the readings. What I think is maybe the most important point of this talk is what I mentioned there in C, and that is the emphasis change from the Mass of 1962, that's the traditional Latin Mass, the extraordinary form, whatever you guys call it, the Old Mass, and the Mass of 1969, the Mass we celebrate now, the Novus Ordo. When it comes to the Liturgy of the Word, there was a a major, major change in terms of the theology behind it and what they're emphasizing. So in 1962, in the Old Mass, when you read the Word of God, it was considered an act of worship. And the notion was, when you read sacred scripture, you're reading the Word of God, you're recalling the words, the love letters, as St. Augustine says, which God gave to us, and you're also remembering his glorious deeds, which he had done throughout salvation history. And that in and of itself is an act of worship. So I have the quote there in A from Luke 2:20. When the shepherds return, they glorify and praise God for all they had heard and seen. And so every time we read sacred scripture, we are glorifying God for what we hear and what we see. And in the Old Mass, that was the major point of emphasis. Reading sacred scripture is an act of worship of God. And so they had certain things which added to this emphasis, candles and incense, which we still have. But there was a major emphasis on candles and incense. You would chant the readings, very, very common. The subdeacon would chant the epistle. But probably the thing that emphasized it the most is that the readings were proclaimed in Latin. And that might sound strange, but I think you have to understand their thought process. Why would you proclaim the readings in Latin if nobody understands it, right? And in 1962, very few people understood it, right? It's this idea of a sacred language. All right. So there's sort of a history of sacred languages. And what's curious is historians have discovered this. Every culture and every sort of society and every religion, as far as we know, had a sacred language. So the Greeks and the Romans had sort of this old form of Greek and Roman. In Hebrew, or the Jews, they had old Hebrew. So in the time of Christ, in the synagogue, they would have read the readings in old Hebrew. And many of the people would not have understood it. They would have been speaking Aramaic. They would have known some Hebrew. They wouldn't have known this old Hebrew, but it was the sacred language. And notice that Jesus Christ criticizes the Pharisees for a lot of pomp and circumstance. He never criticizes the use of sacred language. In Islam, you have classical Arabic. In the Church of England, you have that Elizabethan English, right? That proper English. Buddhism has Pali. Hindu has Sanskrit. The Orthodox Christians have Greek, and in the West, in the Catholic Church, the sacred language was Latin. That was our sacred language. 
I think to understand sacred languages, you have to think about what language does, because it actually does two things. It probably does more, but I can think of two things off the top of my head. The first thing is language conveys information, right? That's what I'm doing right now. I'm using words to convey information to you. But think about poetry and think about singing and all of those things. Language can be used to sort of set an ambiance or to express feelings and emotions or just express the human person. You often hear songs on the radio and you don't really know the words, but you're like, that sounds happy, right? It doesn't matter what the words are. The words aren't conveying the information. There's just an expression being used. And so the purpose of sacred languages is they're supposed to express something which is transcendent, which is other. I babble on all throughout the day in English, right? But back in the day when you spoke Latin, you were speaking to God. It was sacred. It was set apart. And so you only used your Latin for worship. Originally, Latin was used by the church just for convenience. It was the language that everyone spoke. But over time, it became the language of worship. It became a sacred language. You also will notice in sacred languages, they quickly became, they become archaic. And people don't understand them, but that's actually one of their strengths because they're expressing unchangeable truths about an unchangeable God. And so the fact that you use the same expressions over and over again in this sacred language was actually considered its strength. And so you would chant or you would recite the readings in the sacred language, the language which you use to speak to God and you wouldn't fully understand it and it would be mysterious and yet it was supposed to lift you up into the mystery of God. The vernacular, we try and pull God down to us. Sacred languages lift us up into the mystery of God and you're okay with that. And you know it's something different because the priest isn't speaking English, he's speaking Latin and that's special. And you know that, so the transcendent. So that was sort of the reason for the sacred language and the history behind sacred languages. You also had some symbolism. I'm on number three at the bottom of the page. You would change sides for the reading in the 1962 Mass. You would read the epistle, the instruction on one side, and then for the gospel, you would cross over and you would read the gospel facing north. Why north, right? That's weird. Well. Think about if you're in Rome, who's in the north? The pagans. And so you are proclaiming the gospel towards the pagans. And so if you flip the page, there is this idea that the, there's a universal unfolding of the gospel. It's coming from sort of the hearts of the church in Rome, and it is unfolding into the pagan darkness. You also have the notion of the light of Christ shining in the darkness, right? The true light that enlightens every man. As you proclaim the gospel into the north, you are proclaiming Christ to the pagans and to the darkness of the world. So that's why they would face north. Again, the idea is worship and symbolism. They're not worried about facing the people and they're not worried about the vernacular. They're worried about their sacred language and the symbolism and what they're doing because it's an act of worship. It's an act directed towards God. So in 69, there's a change of emphasis of the word of God. It's now, the emphasis is gonna be didactic. It's seen as a dialogue between the people and God, right? So already by, the, by 1969, there was a movement to have certain things in the vernacular, in the native language. You see in the baptismal rites in the 60s, the greeting was done in English. 
Um, the sacred things like the exorcism were still in Latin, but there was this desire for an increased use of the native tongues. And so the readings were then done in the native tongue, in Spanish or in French or in English or in German. Because it's a dialogue between the people, you're no longer worried about facing north. You're no longer worried about proclaiming Christ against the pagans. You face the people because you face who you talk to. And so the priest sort of stands in the person of Christ and reads the gospel in a language they understand. He's conveying information and there's a response. And all of this is sort of this movement of liturgical worship. So if you look on page two, on the back page of page one, page two, you will see one, two, three, and four, and it's four verses from Exodus. And it sort of explains what they're getting at. So you read in number one, so Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. So there's a gathering of people. This should remind you of mass, right? We gather together. There's a gathering. Then in Exodus 20, God speaks to his people. It says, and God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So the people gather and then God speaks to them, right? So think of the mass. We gather, we have our penitential rites, and then God speaks to you through his sacred word. Then in Exodus 24, after hearing the word of God, the people respond. It says, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So the people hear the word of God and then they respond to it. So think of the way we now do the liturgy of the word. There is a reading. You guys, we all respond to the reading with a responsorial psalm. There is a second reading. We then respond to that with the A word, or praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ, in Lent, right? There is the gospel, and then there's an acclamation at the end, and then there's the prayers of the faithful, you respond. There's a dialectic that's occurring. That was the major emphasis. Then, to go back to Exodus, after they have responded to the word of God, what do they run off and do? They sacrifice. And it says, and Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain, and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. That is what they were going for at mass. The people gather, they hear the word of God, they respond to the word of God, and then we go to the liturgy of the Eucharist and offer the most holy sacrifice of the mass. That's the emphasis now, is this didactic, this back and forth dialogue between the people and the word of God. All right? It's a change. I won't say which one I prefer, but it's just, that's a historical fact, right? The high point of the liturgy of the word is the reading of the gospel. So back in the day, the, the medievals used to debate when you had to show up to mass to fulfill your Sunday obligation. I've always told people when people ask me, you have to make it before the gospel. You should make it at the beginning. I don't want anybody walking in at the end, but I've always said you have to make it by the gospel to fulfill your Sunday obligation. Because as I mentioned earlier, there's the liturgy of the word, the liturgy of the Eucharist, the twofold nourishment. 
sort of the high point of the liturgy of the word is the gospel. So make sure you're here through the, through, for the gospel and make sure you stay through at least the Our Father, right? Sort of the liturgy of the Eucharist. So the reading of the gospel, and I mentioned here in D, it constitutes the high point of the liturgy of the word. So why is that? It's because if you think of sacred scripture, the gospels are the heart of the Bible. The Old Testament prepares for Christ. It's why when you read the Old Testament, you should be thinking of the New Testament of Jesus Christ and how he fulfills it. The Old Testament prepares for Christ, prophesies Christ. Christ comes, the word of God, the sole, only begotten word of God the Father comes. The Gospels explain his life, his time, and his words. And then the, the Acts of the Apostles explains the spread of the church flowing out of the Gospel. And then the New Testament epistles kind of expound and explain the Gospels. So the Gospels are the hearts of sacred scripture. So it's the high point of the liturgy of the word. The liturgy itself, as it says, teaches the great reverence that is to be shown to this reading by setting it off from the other readings with special marks of honor, so think incense and candles, by the fact of which minister is appointed to proclaim it, so the priest proclaims the gospel or the deacon, and by the prayer or blessing with which he prepares himself. So what they're saying is all the things you see before you read the gospel are supposed to set it apart. All sacred scripture is inspired by God and is the word of God, but the gospel is the heart of sacred scripture and so we set it apart. So we have the, gospel, the book of the Gospels, right? We have the Gospel procession when I have my guild with the candles. I incense the book of the Gospel. I reverence the book of the Gospel by putting a cross on it. After I read it, I kiss the book of the Gospel. All of these things are setting apart the Gospel. It's telling you, like, if you were asleep, and you shouldn't have been, but if you are, wake up, because the Gospel is being read, and it's important. I should also mention that, well, we'll go. Prayer before and after the gospel. So the priest reads the gospel unless a deacon is present. It's funny because when you're in seminary, there's always deacons at mass because you have deacons in the seminary. So as a deacon, you get used to having mass with deacons. You get into a parish and I don't have a deacon. So I remember Deacon Joseph Height, many of you know, he came out when I'd been here for like two months and I totally forgot how to celebrate Mass with a deacon. So he comes over to me before the gospel to get the blessing. And the first thing out of my mouth is, what are you doing? And he's like, I need your blessing. I was like, oh, well, let's see if I can remember that one. Side anecdote. Things which run through my head during the Mass, right? So if the deacon's reading the gospel, he comes and he says, bless me, Father. And he bows down and the priest gives him a blessing. And he says, may the Lord... Be in your heart and on your lips that you may proclaim his gospel worthily and well in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So it's an actual blessing. It's referring to Isaiah when, I mentioned it last week, when he appears before the throne of God and he says, woe is me for I am a man of unclean lips. And the angel takes a burning uh, branch and touches his lips. That's what that prayer is referencing. Really the high point of the diaconal service is reading the gospel it, when it comes to the liturgy of the word. The high point of the, the deacon is to proclaim the gospel. So at your ordination to the diaconate, you receive a book of the gospel and the bishop says, receive the book of the gospel, believe what you read, teach what you believe, practice what you teach. Believe what you read, 
teach what you believe, practice what you teach. I remember Father Luke Strand, he, I assume he still does this, but he used to give all of the newly ordained deacons book of the gospel. It still sits in my office. So the deacon, if he is there, he proclaims the gospel, right? He reads those sacred words. If he is not, then the priest will read it. The priest also says a prayer when he reads the gospel. Um, it's the Munda Cormeum. It is, in English, cleanse my heart and my lips, almighty God, that I may worthily proclaim your holy gospel. So again, it's referencing Isaiah. You are asking the Lord to make you worthy to proclaim his sacred words. So you see the importance of the words of the gospel. You also notice, well, maybe you don't notice this, but when I kiss the gospel at the end, after I've read it, I say a prayer. I say, through the words of the gospel, may our sins be wiped away. That's referencing what you see in John 15, 3, where our Lord says to his apostles, you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. The word of God is a sacramental. It's not a sacrament, but it's a sacramental. The words of God have the power, because they are living, because they are effective, because they are words of God, they have the power to cleanse our hearts and our minds from sin. And that's what it's referencing. So if you've been paying attention to the Mass series, there is a ton of opportunities to have your sins sort of cleansed and purged away, all those venial sins which cling to you, right? During the penitential rite, when you say, I confess to Almighty God, and I say, may Almighty God have mercy on us, forgive us our sins, and bring us to everlasting life. You have the reading of the Gospel. The Our Father is another time. There's all this sort of perpetual cleaning throughout the Mass of our sins. All right, let's see where we are at on time. 27 minutes. So I will say we will take a five minute break and then I will continue with the optional part of the mass, which is the homily. <laughs> Father Nathan and I had disagreements about that back in the day, <laughs> especially at 615. All right. We will continue on. So we are on E with the homily. So you'll notice in number one, it says that the homily is part of the liturgy and is highly recommended. So it's not mandatory for non-Sundays and solemnities. It is just highly recommended. And it says why? For it is necessary for the nurturing of the Christian life. Apparently, whoever wrote the general instruction for the Roman Missal had never heard bad homilies because it thinks that every homily, right, nurtures the Christian life. So I appreciate that compliment. <clears throat> said, <laughs> said it should be an explanation of some aspect of the readings from sacred scripture. So now it's telling you what, as a priest what you can preach on. You can preach on sacred scripture or of another text from the ordinary or the proper of the mass of the day. So you can preach on sacred scripture or you can preach on some other text of the mass. I do this a lot. I preach on the opening prayer, the opening collect because I like them a lot. And then it says that the homily should take into account both the mystery being celebrated, so this would be like the liturgical season, or if we're celebrating a special feast, and the particular needs of the listeners. So you have to know your flock as a priest. You have to know what your people need so that you can preach to them properly. 
I should say that it's worth pointing out that this is a change. This idea that the homily is part of the mass is a change from the traditional rite from 1962. In 1962, the priest used to actually take his maniple off and he would lay it on the book of the gospel. And they would also sometimes take their chasuble off for the homily. And the reason they did this, and you still see this in the extraordinary form, is because the homily was not considered part of the mass. Just the way they thought about things, they never would have imagined that like human words, like me rambling on for seven minutes at a homily would be like worthy to be part of the mass. So the, it was almost like you proclaim the gospel, and it's like, all right, take off your maniple, take off your chasuble, preach for a little bit, and then continue the mass. That was a change. In 69, they said, no, 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 the homily is an important and integral, integral and highly recommended part of the mass. So it's worth, it's a change. In two, it says the homily should order, ordinarily be given by the priest celebrant himself or be entrusted by him to a concelebrating priest. So like a couple Saturdays ago, when Father Kirk was here, he was the main celebrant. If he had wanted, he could have had me preach, but I told him it was all his. You guys hear enough from me. And it says, or from time to time, and if appropriate, to the deacon. So if you're excited about Deacon Dominic, soon to be Deacon Dominic, he will preach when he is a deacon. Usually what happens is a guy gets ordained a deacon, and then there's one weekend that I will have him preach all the masses. So everybody gets to, it's your first preach mass, they call it. So deacons can preach from time to time and if appropriate, as it says. And number three, it does point out that although the homily is always highly recommended, on Sundays and holy days of obligation, there is to be a homily at every mass. So the hom homily is mandatory on Sundays and holy days of obligations. On other days, it's just highly recommended. So. That's the homily. After the homily, of course, there is, for solemnities, the creed. The creed is ancient. The apostolic creed is the old Roman baptismal statement of faith, which they would have said before they were baptized. So you're talking like the second, third century. The Nicene-Constantinople creed is a little bit later. It enters the mass for the first time around 589. It starts to enter the mass. And you see its purpose. This is the purpose of the creed, or profession of faith is that the whole gathered people may respond, may respond to the word of God, proclaimed in the readings taken from sacred scripture and explained in the homily, and that they may also honor and confess the great mysteries of the faith by pronouncing the rule of faith. So you have this idea with the creed that the word of God, which should penetrate your heart and should produce fruits of good works, but also faith, the response of humans to the words of God should always be one of faith. And so we just heard the word of God. We just heard the gospel. Then you have a homily, which is expounding the word of God. And our response should be one of faith. And so we recite the creed, I believe. We give ourselves over to the word of God. We respond to it in faith. There's also this notion of unity in the creed. We are all gathered in the mystical body of Christ, the one church and we're professing our one faith, right? Think of Paul, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. So the creed is a testament of our unity. It's a response to God. There's also this notion, which I mentioned on the final page, that, and you saw it a little bit more in the old rite, there's this emphasis of orthodoxy, of right belief in the incarnation and the divinity of the Holy Spirit. So there's this understanding, you see it in the Gospel of John, that we should not really approach the Lord or we can't approach the Lord unless we remain in truth. 
And so we're about to approach the sacrifice of the altar. And so first we should sort of testify to the truth. And we do that by reciting the creed. Um, what else about the creed? I think that's all I needed to mention about it. One thing worth pointing, it was always held in sort of Catholic circles that the creed is ultimately derived from sacred scripture. So again, you have the reading of the word of God and then you have the creed. It's almost like it's just the truths of the faith are just flowing right out of sacred scripture. So we recite the creed. In number three, the general instruction for the Roman Missal says something that I think is worth emphasizing. It says, since the faithful from different countries come together ever more frequently, so that would be like when I was in Guatemala studying Spanish, it is desirable that they know how to sing together at least some parts of the ordinary of the mass in Latin, especially the profession of faith and the Lord's Prayer according to the simpler settings. So one of the things we're doing in the school is teaching the kids some of those common prayers. And so what you notice, another thing, I talked about Latin being a sacred language, but there's some other reasons why the church, especially the Second Vatican Council, emphasizes Latin. One is it becomes a source of unity. If everybody knows the Our Father in Latin, let's say, and there's a gathering of people from various countries, they can recite the Lord's Prayer in Latin. And with the creed, if they all know the creed in Latin, then they have one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one common language that they all can recite the rule of faith in. That's why it's emphasizing Latin in the creed. What you see, ultimately, is this undoing of the Tower of Babel. So, right, so go back to Genesis. You have the Tower of Babel, right? Humans are trying to climb up to heaven, which we always do, and it always fails, right? We try and divinize ourselves. And then they get scattered, and God scatters the language, their tongues. At Pentecost, at, when the church is about to go out into the world, they all speak various languages, but they speak tongues, and everybody understands it. And what Luke is pointing out in Acts of the Apostles is the scattering which occurred at the Tower of Babel is now being undone through the church. God the Father through the church is now gathering all of his children back in. And so it's good for them to have a common language. Other reasons for using Latin, just because we're on the topic, you, you will hear sort of exorcists talk about when they use Latin, pray, when they pray in Latin, it often has a stronger effect. And exorcists have reflected upon this because like, why is this? You know, you're praying in English with faith or you're praying with Latin. And they will mention a couple things. One is if you think about the defeat of Satan, what was the defeat of Satan? It was the cross. And there were three languages written on the cross. There was Greek, there was Latin, and there was Aramaic. And so Satan remembers that. And those three languages, once they were written on the cross, which is the instrument of defeat of Satan, sort of have a little extra pizzazz to them. You also have the fact that demons, right? They don't die off, they perdure. So with something like Latin, you, when you are sort of as an exorcist, casting out a demon, you may perchance be casting out a demon that St. Francis of Assisi had cast out of Assisi. And he would remember this because that's how their intellects are. They're very powerful intellects. And so when Francis of Assisi was casting them out using Latin, and then you as an exorcist walk out and say the same prayer in Latin in the Pater Noster, Quiest in Celis, Ave Maria, the demon remembers that. 
and it sort of has a traumatizing effect, it seems, upon them. So again, there's an emphasis throughout the church and throughout the Missal of Latin. It's a sacred language. It's a language set apart for God. It's a language which was written on the cross. And it's a language that saints have spoken year in and year out, right? Okay. So I don't know the creed in Latin. Maybe we should work on it. That's all I'm saying. I do know the Our Father. And the kids at the school are doing an amazing job with the Hail Mary and the Our Father. I've been very impressed with them. So I've been working with their vowels because Latin, church Latin has very clear and crisp vowels. So it's good. All right. After the creed is the prayers of the faithful, also called the universal prayers. And the reasoning for them is it says in the universal prayer or prayer of the faithful, the people respond. Remember, again, this idea of responding in some sense to the word of God, which they have received in faith, think the creed, and exercising the office of their baptismal priesthood, offer prayers to God for the salvation of all. So again, it's you've heard the word of God, you've responded in faith, and what's the next natural reaction? To ask God for things, right? Because you trust him, because his word has inspired you, it's cut to the heart. And so, we pray. It in number two here, the general instruction for the Roman Missal sort of gives a series of intentions. They like the ordering. At daily mass, I follow this very, very strictly. It's the first intention is for the needs of the church. The second one is for public authorities and the salvation of the whole world. The third is for those burdened by any kind of difficulty. The fourth is for the local community, and it's sort of just always a custom as a fifth to pray for the dead. So. Think of the universal prayers, you will see us going right through that. And then it says, the intentions announced should be sober, be composed with a wise liberty and in few words, and they should be expressive of the prayer of the entire community. It's a very Roman way of praying. It is simple, it is to the point, it gets downhill, and it has this element of universality to it. So. After that point, we sit down, of course, we begin the preparation of the altar, and that begins the liturgy of the Eucharist. So, as promised, I will now take some questions. I have 17 minutes today. Why is the baptismal font over there? I do not know why it's on the left side. As I mentioned the first time, it's normally in the back. There was the custom of moving baptismal fonts to the front of church when we started to do baptisms during mass so people could see. So that's how it ended up in the front and not the back, unlike the symbolism which I talked about the first time. Good question. Everything I've talked about is fair game. Sydney. How long does it take you to like prep for a homily? How long does it take me to prep for a homily? That depends. A bad homily, not very long. Fulton Sheen had this great line where it's like, if you want a long homily, it doesn't take very long. If you want a short homily, it takes a long time. So in an ideal world, this is what they told us to do in seminary. So after Sunday Masses, you would read the next weekend's readings for the first time. And then they would kind of stew throughout the week. And then you would sit down at some point in a holy hour and you would write a homily. In an ideal world, that works. Maybe when Father Strand comes and I'm an associate pastor, I will go back to that. My methodology now is usually about Friday. I will sit down and look through the readings for the first time and see what I'm getting myself into. Then Saturday, I have the morning mass, I have confessions. I will block out usually a two hour period of time on my calendar. 
Monsignor Schechterly in Menominee Falls taught me, always write your homily in the presence of our Lord and the Blessed Sacrament. So he always wrote his homilies in adoration, so I do that as well. So I will take the text to adoration and then usually two hours. I usually just print them and then kind of just scribble notes on them. So you will hear priests say anything from like two to four hours. It's kind of standard for a weekend homily. For a daily mass homily, it takes me as long as it takes to drive from Kewaskum to here. <laughs> when I am done, with, during my morning cup of coffee, I will look at the daily readings, and when I am driving over here, I will ponder what I will say. <laughs> so, the question was, of the prayers which I say, they're called the secret prayers to myself, how many do I say in, in English and how many do I say in Latin? I say probably half of them in Latin and half of them in English. Back in the day, you used to have what were called altar cards. So like propped up here, you would have a big card. And then you'd have a card here, and you'd have a card here. And they would have the prayers, some of the prayers, the standard prayers of the priests, written on them. And you would just read them off the cards. I actually do have altar cards for the, the Novus Ordo. I just, they're sitting in my room. I haven't brought them. Um, so about half, because that's all I know, if I knew them all. It's tough because I can't pray in Latin as fast as I can pray in English, which probably is a good thing because it would force me to slow down and not just go through the motions. It's another benefit of Latin. But it also means when I start to try and pray a new prayer in Latin, my cadence is a little off, so I kind of have to readjust. And then it takes mental energy because I'm recalling a second language or whatever language Latin is for me, the third language, fourth language, from memory. So about half. The ones I do for sure, the prayer before the gospel, Mundi Cormeu, Maclavia Mea, and then the prayer after the gospel, and then some of the prayers at the altar. Yes, so the question was just guidelines on candles. So there's a couple things you can do with candles. You can do what we see here with candles next to the altar. What became custom uh, under Pope Benedict is he put candles on the altar. It was meant to draw your eyes to the altar, it was also to recall the veil of the sanctuary. In the old, um, the old temple, you had the veil, which separated the presence of God from the people. And so the candles are like a visual veil. And then if you think about it, during communion, I take our Lord, and he pierces that veil and comes down to your heart. And so Benedict would put six candles right across the front, and he would put an altar cross in the middle. You can still do that. That's one of the options. Usually you have candles in the back by the tabernacle. Um, there's some degree of flexibility with candles. In Menominee Falls, we used to have six candles on the altar. And what we would do for masses is we would light a different number depending on the degree of the solemnity. So for Sundays, we would light all the candles and we would light candles on the back altar. For weekdays that didn't have a saint, we would just light one candle on each side. If there was a saint, we would write light two. If it was a feast, we would light three, but not the candles on the back. And so the candles were telling you sort of how high the feast was, and that's also permitted. So you have some options. It is encouraged for major feasts, and I, I did this for Christmas, that you essentially light everything you got, right? So I put the candelabras on the altar because it's festive, it's celebrating. In Lent, it does ask you to tone it down a bit. So like at St. Mary's, I have not been lighting the candles on the back during Lent because it's a toned-down liturgy. So those are sort of the guidelines. And help me understand the 
Yeah, so the question is, is it seems like the homily is the height of the liturgy of the words and not the words of the gospel. Do you know why we have that impulse? Culturally think, back in the day, the pagans worshipped created things, the sun, the moon, animals. Culturally, what do we tend to worship now? Think about TikTok. Think about going to a gym with mirrors. Think about self-help books. We have turned inward. There's this sort of anthropomorphizing of the human person where we are, once again, we've gone back to Eden, right? We're trying to divinize ourselves. And so there's this tendency, it flows into the liturgy, of making the people or making the priest the center of attention. I think that's why it flows into the homily. Then you have some priests, good for them, who are very charismatic. They have sort of a cultic personality, right? And they preach very, very well, and people get attached to them. That, again, it drives this sort of overemphasis in some ways upon the priest during Mass. I think that's why intuitively we think the homily. Now, the, the, the answer, the simple answer, is why is the homily not more important than the, than the gospel? Because the homily are whose words? Mine. What is the gospel? God's. Which words are more important? There you have it. <laughs> It's a danger. It's a danger in the modern world of overemphasizing ourselves. You see it with technology, with the culture. It's just like a self-divinization. It's our tendency. We did it way back in Eden, and it happens to priests. We, we, get, we develop this Messiah complex, and we have to resist that. God is the center of the Mass. Not me, not you, God. So who or how are the intentions decided? Right now, I give it to one of our two liturgy people who write the intentions. For daily mass, I make them up on the spot. Um, what I try and encourage them, so you've noticed we've been praying for Dominic a lot. I try and ponder the various needs of our community, things which are happening in our community. Before the school auction, a couple days at daily mass, I prayed for success at the school auction. So you want to kind of be aware as a priest of what's going on in your community. Include those in the intention. On Sundays, we always include people who have recently died in our intentions as well. But ultimately, somebody just writes them. There are sort of stock petitions in the Roman Missal, but there's only like three pages of them. So you would cycle them through pretty quick. So. Yes. So the question is, after the two-year daily cycle and the three-year Sunday cycle, how much of the Bible are we actually covering? The answer is a ton. Um, <laughs> I want to say like 80% or something. I mean, it's a lot. Even just in your Sunday cycle, you get a significant chunk. And if you go to daily Mass, I mean, you are getting the vast majority of it. So you get a lot. And then you also get the Mass Have you? as you or you get the Bible, you realize just in all these other instances of the Mass, you actually get... You, Catholics are consumed in Scripture more than they realize. Maybe that's how we do it. We just subtly sort of... That's a very Catholic way of doing things, though, right? You just sort of immerse yourself in it, and then it sort of just sticks. So... Yes. The epistle is the second reading. It references the fact that usually, not always, but usually the second reading comes from the epistles of Paul, the letters of Paul, or the epistles of Peter or James. Mm -hmm. 
So the question is, uh, for the creed, you have two options. You can recite the Apostolic Creed, which is the shorter one, and you can recite the Nicene-Constantinople Creed. The preference of the church is the Nicene-Constantinople Creed because it's fuller. It expresses, it emphasizes the divinity of the Holy Spirit, the incarnation of Christ, right? All those things which they fought over and debated in the early church. In Lent, it is, I wouldn't say it's recommended, maybe it is recommended, but the option is given to have the Apostolic Creed. And the reason for that is, as I mentioned, the Apostolic Creed was sort of the creed which catechumens would recite before their baptism. And since Lent is leading up towards the Easter Vigil, when you're going to have catechumens go through the church, there's sort of this option given for the Apostles' Creed. So... Yes, the question is, do we reuse homilies? I am strongly and outspokenly against that for a couple reasons. One, a priest should be praying every day, right? A priest should pray a daily holy hour. A priest, at the very least, every other day should be do, doing spiritual reading. He should be reading the lives of the saints. He should be reading theological works. So his heart and his mind should be formed. He should get holier, right? Three years from now, I should be smarter and holier than I am now. And if I am not, you should chew me out. You say, what did you do for three years? Especially once you got a pastor. You're an associate. You had time again, Father. Because of that, three years from now, I should intellectually and spiritually be in a different place than I am now. I should be able to preach better. I should get better at priestcraft, as Father Brad would call it, right? Priestcraft. The other reason why I'm against reusing homilies is your homilies often flow out of your prayer life. You guys don't know this because you don't know what I'm praying about. But usually things which I have been praying about and pondering, that's going to flow out into your homily. And some of that's divine providence, right? God placed me here in this assignment, and God moves me in my prayer life. It's for certain reasons. And so that's going to flow out to you guys because I assume God knows what he's doing. I don't always know what I'm doing. Most of the time I don't know what I'm doing, but God knows what he's doing. So your homily's flowing out of your prayer life, and your prayer life's going to move. It's going to be in different places. You're going to have seen different things. And the final reason is the needs of your community change. The needs of our community will not be the same three years from now that they are now. And so I think a priest has to continuously have new homilies. Pope Benedict had this great thing when he was retired. He talked about how he would write his daily mass homily for like the five people that he celebrated mass for. But every day he came up with a new homily because he thought it was that important. So that should be the priest. So I'm against reusing homilies. There are priests who do it, I won't name names. The question is, what is my opinion, which is always a dangerous thing to ask, in the change of emphasis, the theological emphasis from the 1962 Mass to 1969? So remember, 62, the emphasis, is the reading of sacred scripture as an act of worship. The emphasis now is on dialogue. I, this is just my opinion, so clarify that. If Pope Francis were here, he would disagree with me because he has disagreed with me in documents, and so that's why we do the readings in English, because I'm an obedient priest. So with all of those dis disclaimers, I actually see the genius of the 62, reading it in Latin, in the sacred language, in an act of worship. The reason for this is twofold. One, as I mentioned, the tendency in the modern world is to turn towards the human person and to deify the human person. The 62 Mass, you knew what you were doing. You knew you were glorifying God. 
The other reason is we fight a world that is very, very secular. And so when Paul walked into Corinth to start a church there, he was dealing with pagans. But all the pagans knew how to worship their gods because they would grow up and they would slaughter calves and they would sacrifice to their gods. They had a very, very good understanding of sacrifice and in worship. We do not anymore. Our secular world fights against it so strongly that I think our liturgy has to push back and it has to constantly remind us that we must worship God. And what's tragic about this is, and this is the whole letter to, to the Hebrews, is he's arguing that, look, for the first time after Jesus Christ, for the first time since we were thrown out of Eden, we now have the opportunity to offer right and perfect worship to God through Jesus Christ. Through the Mass, we can enter into the heavenly worship for the first time. And for us to forget that is tragic. For us to forget that the, the sacrifice of the Mass is sort of the perfect form of worship, which we have the opportunity to offer, is tragic. And so I think we have to do things that constantly remind us of this. The final reason is I'm in the school a lot. It's one of the things we do great is I'm constantly in the school. And I go and I visit these school kids. And what breaks my heart is these kids are crying out for the transcendent. Their hearts long for the infinite and the beautiful and ultimately for God because they sit on YouTube for 20 hours every day and they sit on TikTok and those things can't satisfy their hearts. And they know it. They won't admit it, but it crushes them and it manifests itself in anxiety and depression and all these things. And so they are crying out for the transcendent. And so I think we should try as hard as we can to constantly remind them of where the transcendent can be found. That's my thoughts. The worship of God, the transcendent, the 62 Mass, the way it proclaimed the liturgy of the word reminded us of that. Again, people would disagree because the dialectic component is important. I get all that. That's, those are my thoughts. Uh, the question is ad orientum. I will talk about ad orientum later on in the series um, and sort of its role in that. You are currently, I believe, in Pope Francis's document of Traditio Custodis. I believe you're not allowed to do the, Latin, the readings in Latin. I think they have to be in the vernacular now. Um, so again, like I said, he would disagree with me on that. She asked my opinion. So. Yeah. Yeah, the question was the loss of sacred language. That, that's one of always the dangers of translation. There's, what's the old saying that every translator is a liar or something? It's because you can never, we do a pretty good job translating languages, and I've spent a lot of time translating languages, and I translate a lot of Latin. But you can never sort of reproduce all the nuance of a language as much as you want to, right? And so part of the purpose of the sacred language, like the Alleluia, right? The word we can't say during Lent, and some of these phrases, shalom, and all these things is, you can never fully sort of translate them because they just have a richness to them. Language is a, is a wondrous thing. It's kind of miraculous in many ways. And yeah, it's hard to retain that beauty. That's part of the reason why the, the Missal currently is like on its third translation, is because they're constantly trying to like perfect the way they translate it, and it's just really hard to do. So, all right, I'll take one more question. I'm starting to go over. 
Is it good to have plants on the altar? It is actually forbidden to have anything on the altar other than a cross, candles, the missile, and the things I need for Mass. Like in the sanctuary. Oh, can you have plants in the sanctuary? Yes, you can. You, not during Lent. They don't want plants and flowers in the sanctuary. But you can. But there has to be some degree of moderation because the center of Mass is the altar because that's where the sacrifice is going to happen. So you wouldn't want to put a big palm tree here because it's blocking essentially the altar. But you can decorate it to a point, but they never want things set, setting on it because this is not a table. This is an image of Christ, and it's like rude to set things on them. So. But yes, you can have somewhat decorations. In a perfect world, your altar in and of itself is just beautiful and magnificent. It doesn't need anything added to it. That was what I think they were envisioning. So... The old like hand carved altars were pretty awesome. So that is all I have for this week. So next week we'll talk about the liturgy of the Eucharist. We'll talk about sort of the preparation of the altar. I'll talk about the Eucharistic prayers, some of them. Talk about some of the gestures that I do during it, explain some of those. So but first I'll give you a blessing. So if you don't mind standing. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Thank you. Thank you.